This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we we started a new series, and uh, we called it The Hard Sayings of Jesus, because in many ways uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says a lot of things that happen to be disturbing and things that we, we have struggled with. If you've grown up in the church at all, trying to understand what is, or unpack, what is he really trying to say? And without a good guide, it's really hard to understand a lot of the things that Jesus actually said and taught in the scriptures. And, um, you know, when we say it's a hard sayings, on one hand, what we're saying is that they're difficult sayings. But they're not just difficult, it's like hard candy. You know, you gotta, you gotta suck on it for a while, or like a good piece of steak, you gotta chew on it for a while, in order to really savor and enjoy the richness of what's inside. And, so, and that's, what we're, that's why we're calling it the hard sayings of Jesus. And in this passage, we're covering two very, very common things that we all experience throughout our lives, suffering and temptation. Um, and here Jesus is dialoguing with Satan. And Satan says, you're hungry. Go make some bread. And, and Jesus responds and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, but by the word that comes from God. You know, um, Jesus throughout his suffering is he lives and he eats and he breathes and he bleeds scripture the word of god it shapes his response to his suffering it shapes him in the midst of temptation and he's able to see as a result what is important before what is urgent so he doesn't make bread and what's that telling us tells us that your view of god your view of satan your view of heaven, your view of hell, it's going to affect, it's going to drive your lifestyle, how you deal with suffering, how you deal with temptation. For instance, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that God exists, and you believe that we're just a bunch of molecules that billions of years ago came together by chance, then there's no, there's no need for traditional morality. There's no need to live a good life. You know, because there's no higher judge And we have to agree then with the philosophers such as Frederick Nietzsche 
who says that God is dead, and as a result, we can create our own rules, we can live our own laws, live any way that you want. That's, in fact, that's the only way to live. And, you know, you know, when that happens, if that happens, if that's the way you're going to live, when suffering happens to you, something horrible, something like murder, you know, the murder of a loved one, you know, something absolutely horrible like rape, you have no right to cry out injustice. You have no right then to cry out for justice because if we're just molecules that happen to get together by chance, you know, then suffering also is random. And there's no reason, you have no basis, you have no basis by which you can say, this is unjust. Justice needs to be done here. But if you believe that there is a God, then you know that life isn't random. There is a judge. There is an account. There is good. There is evil. There is justice. There is justice over every injustice. And when you suffer, although you cry out, you can know that these things are not random in our lives. You know that there will be justice. You know that there is design. And your view of God is going to impact then what your, how you respond to your temptations, how you respond to suffering. And so there's three things we're going to learn today about suffering, about temptation, because Jesus here, he's suffering. And Jesus here is being tempted. It's a very famous passage, if you've grown up in the church, about temptation. We're going to learn about the general, the general lessons about temptation and suffering, the specific lessons about temptation and suffering, and lastly, what's the power? Where do we get the power to resist or heal from our suffering and our temptations? Okay, the general, the specific, and the power. First, the general. The general lessons about temptation and suffering. Who suffers? Who is tempted? And when do we suffer? When are we tempted? And we see this in verse 1, the beginning of the passage, and we see it, you know, a combination of the beginning and the end, verses 14 to 15 of this passage. Okay, verse 1. It says, Jesus, he's full of the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. In Mark chapter 1, it says, the Spirit actually came down on him, you know, and, uh, and then he begins his ministry. And what happens as he begins his ministry? The first, thing that hap- the first thing that happens here is he's taken into the wilderness and he's assaulted by Satan. And then after this, towards the end of the passage, in verses 14 to 15, he's still full of the Spirit. He's still in the Spirit. And what do you see? He's driven right out, back to where he came from, to begin his ministry. It's an amazing thing here. In other words, Jesus was filled with the presence of God. And you could say in some ways that this is kind of like when you come back from a conference or when you come back from a retreat. You have the spiritual high. He's at the highest point in his spiritual life. The presence of God is on him. And yet, Jesus is being attacked by spiritual forces. What happens when you're spiritually full? Suffering. Temptation. That's what happens. You can't just get away. There's never going to be a time in our lives. That's what this text is telling us, that you just get away. It's always going to be there. Jesus, he's coming back from a 40-day retreat, pretty much. A 40-day fasting retreat. And the immediate thing that happens, even during that period, he's suffering and he's being tempted. And this should be mind-blowing because it's contrary to two major views that we have about life. Two prevailing viewpoints about our suffering. What happens... You know, the indigo girls used to sing, you know, how long till I reach the highest light? You know, how long till I reach that point, that spiritual point, uh, you know, the, the highest light? And, and uh, the first viewpoint here we see in the, in the prophet Job, the prophet Job in the Bible, in the Old Testament, he lived a very, very good life. He lived a very wise life. 
But all of a sudden, what happens? Life just completely blows up. And he cries out and he says, why me? Why is this happening to me? This is Job who lived a good life. He lived a good life. He was wise. God actually had shown favor on him. And yet, he's crying out, why me? Why are these things happening to me? Friends, if you suffer, we believe, you know, well, just like Job, you know, we're tempted to believe at least. Like Job, he's crying out, why me? His friends show up. And what do they say? You must have done something wrong. That's why these bad things are happening to you. That's the first prevailing viewpoint that is completely dashed to pieces by Jesus being in the wilderness and suffering. Okay? The second prevailing viewpoint is a corollary to this, and you see this, one of my favorite movies, but it's theologically completely incorrect, you know, The Sound of Music. All right? In The Sound of Music, one of my favorite movies, but completely wrong. If you believe in the theology of The Sound of Music, you're completely thrown away. Why? Here is... Uh, the two protagonists in the, in the movie, right? You have Maria and Captain Von Trapp and they're sharing a moment together and they're utterly in love and they finally come together after, this whole, after the whole movie builds up in this just tension, this relational tension between the two. And what do they sing at the pinnacle, at the peak of that experience? Somewhere, you know, they're explaining, they're trying to figure out why am I experiencing all these good things in my life? This love of my life that's finally come in front of me. What does she sing? What do they sing, actually? Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. The first prevailing viewpoint is, if bad things are going on in your life, you must have done something bad. And if good things are happening in your life, then it's because you must have done something good. And this passage, you know, every religion teaches us some form of that. If you live a good life, you will be blessed. If you don't live a good life, you will be cursed, right? Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, but not Christianity. Not Christianity. In this passage, what do you see? Jesus, who lived an utterly good life, an utterly perfect life, and yet he's suffering. And yet he's being tempted. And this teaches us about suffering and temptation. It teaches us who suffers And it teaches us when suffering happens. First, who? Anyone. That's the answer. Anyone suffers. Think about it. If Jesus, the most perfect person that ever walked the earth, suffers, he's reached the highest light. The Spirit of God descended on him, but he suffers. Well, if Jesus is suffering at his spiritual peak, then we are going to suffer. The Bible is teaching us that we're going to suffer at any point in time in our lives. And that's the second part. When do we suffer? Any time. Think about it. If Jesus is suffering at the spiritual peak of his life, then we're going to suffer. We're going to be tempted at any point in our lives. Suffering happens to, any, to anyone, and suffering happens any time. It doesn't matter how you lived. It blows away what we believe about when suffering happens and to who it happens to. It blows that away. Suffering happens to anyone at any time. It doesn't matter if you've lived a good life. It doesn't matter if you've lived a bad life. Life is a fight. Life is a battle. You know the movie No Country for Old Men? Oscar-winning movie. One of my favorites. Cormac McCarthy, the author, the author of the book. What's the theme of this book? What's the theme of this fictional novel? That whether you are good, whether you are bad, suffering, death, and evil pursues you and it's relentless that's the theme of that novel that's the theme of the movie and if you don't believe this life is going to be a mess 
If you don't believe what I just said, test it out. See for yourself. Life will be an utter mess because you're going to end up then blaming other people for your suffering. You're going to end up blaming yourself and live in self-pity for your suffering. You're going to you know, live blaming the world. You might go postal because of your suffering. You're going to live blaming God for your suffering. You're going to reject him when you realize that he is actually pursuing you. It's quite the opposite. Life will be a mess. You will grow embittered. You will get angry. It's going to corrode your soul. That's what's going to happen. In Psalm chapter 73, the author, in Psalm chapter 73, says, I'm looking around, and I see all these bad people living very, very good lives. And here I am, and I'm suffering. And he says in that passage, Psalm 73, it's a rather long psalm. He says, that thought was oppressive to me until... I I looked up into heaven and saw the sanctuary. And he saw the sacrifice. He says it all made more sense. And then he realized, I was like an animal. I was confused. I was groveling. You know, I was a brute beast, he says, until I saw. He says, until I saw, everything became clear. Until I saw God in his sanctuary and what he does for me, then it made sense to me. Then even my suffering made sense. That's the first point. Who does suffering happen to? Everybody. When does it happen? Anytime. Now, the second passage, the second, sorry, the second point is the specific lesson. We saw the general lessons. Now we have the specific lessons on suffering and temptation. If you believe that God is good, that God is not your enemy, if you believe that your suffering and your temptation is not random, then who is the real enemy here? You know, who's, if it's not God, who is the real enemy? You know, years ago, there was a miniseries about Adolf Hitler that came out. I'm not sure if you've ever seen this miniseries, but um, the very uh, interesting thing about this miniseries was that they tried to psychologize him. They, told, they spent a lot of time focusing on his younger years. You know, a lot of times we look at Hitler in his older years after he takes over Germany, but this miniseries focused on his youth, his childhood, his relationships with his family, you know, um, and, and how he kind of grew to become the man that he was, and psychologized him. And a lot of critics um, <clears throat> panned it because they feared that here's this intense subject matter about a very, very tragic, um, evil figure in our history, our recent history, and the critics feared that it would garner sympathy for Hitler. Why? It's because the world wants to believe that we're a product. We, all of us, are a product of our environment. We're a product of our, of our circumstances. But if you believe that, you can't blame the Nazis. You can't blame the Nazis on, uh, as being a product of their environment. They're an anomaly then. And we all know that they're not an anomaly. We can't blame the Nazis um, you know, uh, for the environment that they lived in. Why? Because the most well-educated, the wealthiest, the tallest, the most handsome people in their time were the Nazis. The most sophisticated, the artists, the great musicians, the educated, they were the Nazis. You can't blame their evil on their environment. You have to go deeper than that. That's what it shows us. Our temptation, our suffering, you know, a lot of times it's like an exit ramp. You know, um, you, know you ever go on a highway and, you know, if you get lost, if you, take the wrong, if you take a wrong turn, you know, you think you could just take a detour. You ever get off an exit ramp and you realize, oh my gosh, I, I wasn't supposed to get off this exit. And you think all you have to do is just turn around and get back on. It doesn't work that way, right? It, 
you know, if you're like me at least, you get lost for, it takes about 10 minutes before you find your way back on the road and head in the right direction, right? And, and so um, that's what it's like. And sometimes you get derailed and that derailment is long lasting, you know? In life, sometimes our derails take us permanent, to a permanent place. Self-control is the ability to recognize and to make a choice between what is important and what is urgent. The important thing versus the urgent desire. You know, if you look at this text, there are three temptations, famous temptations, right? Satan is attacking Jesus at the high point of his spiritual life in many ways in his ministry, right at the beginning of his ministry. And you notice Satan doesn't tempt Jesus by taking him to the red light district. That's not what he does. He doesn't take Jesus and introduce him to prostitutes. That's not what he does. They were his friends anyway, you know. He doesn't take him to a nightclub and try to get him to drink. That's not what he does. What does he use? Bread. That's what he uses. Bread. Some of you can relate with that. Bread is your vice, you know. But for, he, that's what he tries to use. He doesn't use bad things. He uses good things. He says, you're hungry. You need to eat. These are good things. He, he says, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking for security. There's nothing wrong with being a leader. You can be that leader. You can have security. You're protected. You're the son of God. He uses good things in Jesus' life. The problem is, he offers to those things to him now. He says, you can have it now, without going to the cross. He's trying to make these things more important than Christ's relationship with God, than Jesus' mission. And, and this is why, you know, he's trying to make these good things the ultimate thing in Jesus' life without ever having to go through suffering. Without, you know, he says, I basically can offer these things to you and you don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't even need a relationship with God to have these things. If you notice, you know, the, the first time, the first temptation, if you're the son of God. The third temptation, if you're the son of God. But sandwiched between the two, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if you're the son of God. He says, I can give you these things. You don't ever have to go to the cross. You don't have to have a relationship with God. You don't even, you don't have to, that has nothing to do with that. He's trying to make these good things the ultimate thing. This is why we're so often shocked when we do things that we used to scoff at other people for doing. We're surprised when we commit certain sins, you know, certain acts that, you know, we never thought we'd do, but we always made fun of or ridiculed or judged other people for doing. This is why we're shocked. You know, adultery, I can't believe that anybody would do that. You know, embezzling, you know, that word embezzlement, you know, is a very, very specific word that only some people are able to do. So those of us on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder, you know, we look at that and say, we ne- I would never do that. And then one day, you realize you've done that or you've done that, and you wonder how you got there. How did I get here? It's because we've taken good things, things like a relationship, things like money, and we've made them ultimate things. And we've taken the exit ramp, and now we're derailed. We're having a tough time finding our way back. Look at the three temptations. The first temptation, verses 3 to 4, he says, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Bread in the Old Testament represented satisfaction, you know, fulfillment in life. You know, 
If Jesus did this, it would have been the only time in his entire life and ministry where he used his own power to just satisfy, to indulge, to satisfy himself. So the temptation here was more than just bread. It was to use his power, to use his talents, to use his gifts, to indulge, to feed his own appetite, to feed his own pleasure, and do this without God, without suffering, without the cross. And that's us all week, every week, any time. We talk about when temptation happens, when suffering happens, it's any time, anyone, right? This type of temptation, it's very, very direct. It's like an exit ramp that takes you right off the highway, completely off the highway. Things like anger, things like adultery. You get off this exit, you're never going to be able to get back on, not for a while, because you've, you, know, you get off and you just indulge. Self-control is what? It's staying on the road. It's never getting off. Sometimes you just go with the flow. It's not like you're deliberately taking that exit ramp, but that direct sin... You know, that direct temptation is just going with the flow. And next thing you know, sometimes the exit ramp, have you ever been on the New Jersey Turnpike? The exit ramp to get onto the PA Turnpike is half the highway. If you're just in the wrong lane and you're just going with the flow, you end up in Pennsylvania. That's what happens. That's what happens. You just go with the flow. You just stop trying. You just stop focusing. You've given up on people. You've given up on the injustices in life. You've given up on the church. Sometimes we just, give, we just check out on our own lives and we just stay on the road that we're in. We're just going with the flow. You know, you know look at this, what's going on. Jesus, verse 1, he stays on the road, right? The Spirit of God is on him. He's full of the Spirit, says. And it drives him into the wilderness. And each time he suffers, each time he's tempted, each suffering comes with these temptations, he stays on the road. How do you know that? Verse 14, it says, Jesus, full of the Spirit, he's going on. He's on a straight line. He stays straight. He continues on in his ministry. It's all, it's all a part of his mission. He's able to see that. He's so consistent. Look at the consistency of Jesus. Verse 5 to 8, that's the second temptation. First one was turn these, bread, turn this, uh, these stones to bread. Second one, um, what's the temptation? He says, I can give you power. I can give you authority. I can give you the kingdoms of the world. He takes them to this high place and he says, look, I can give you all of this. Now, there's no mountain in the world that you could stand on, that you can actually get to, where you can see all the kingdoms of the world. So clearly Satan is exaggerating. He's showing him a glimpse of what he owns that he can give. He says, I can give these things to you. In other words, you can have glory. And you can have glory without God. You can have glory without suffering. You can have glory without the cross. And that's us every day, any point in time during the week, if you think about it. Right? Every day, we're always looking for glory. We're always looking for to rule. We're always looking for influence. We're always looking for power to assert. And he says, I can give this to you. I can give it to you. Verses 9 to 12, this is the third temptation. He says, I can give you rescue. I can give you security. You know, you can have this without God. Just jump off. They're going to save you. Assert yourself because you are protected. And you can have that, you can realize that you can have that kind of security and you never have to go to the cross. You never have to suffer because they will always just lift you up. So you can have satisfaction and fulfillment. You can have power and glory. You can have security and salvation. And you can have all these things. You know, the presence of Satan provides these things. You know, satisfaction, 
power, security. And he, Satan provides this competing struggle, that's all, this battle that's going on in our hearts all the time. And this is the voice. This is the competing struggle with Satan's presence in our lives. I can give you satisfaction, you. I can give you security, that's you. I can give you power. I can give you glory. I can give you fulfillment. All your needs will be met. And, and the voice is, I can have all these things at other people's cost. And that's why in business, we're always stepping over other people. We just have to squash them. Because if they're better than us, we have to climb over them. And it's, not, it's not just in business. Aristotle says all of life is a power play. Think about your relationships. All of our relationships, the primary struggle is who's in charge, who's in control. So we're always just trying to squash each other, step over each other. You know, every argument. Think about your last argument with somebody that you care about. You know, it's all about who's in charge, who's driving. You know, that's the struggle. Jesus, well, that's the presence of Satan. That's the kingdom of Satan in our lives, not Jesus. He's entering into ministry. And what's his mission? Do you think his mission was just to heal people who were sick? Do you think his very mission, you know, was to be this religious leader that was going to prove his power by just performing some miracles? You know, there were seven miracles recorded in the book of John. You think that was his mission? That was his purpose here on earth? Jesus' mission was to bring in a new kingdom. He was preparing for it. Whenever one administration departs and another administration takes its place, you know, a president leaves, a new president takes over, you know, we had that not too many years ago, right? What happens? He doesn't just come in and take over the old administration. He wipes out the old administration. Everybody loses their jobs. And then what he does is he comes in and he has new followers, he has new administrators, he's got new values. That's what's going on here. Because shortly after, what happens? He's got new followers, Jesus has got new followers, he's got new disciples, new administrators, and he's got new values, a whole new value system. You've got the presence of the first kingdom, that's Satan, and Jesus is saying, my kingdom has come, and when I come, I'm going to wipe out this entire old administration with new values, new administrators, new followers. It's always a fight. That's what's going on here. It begins with a fight. Jesus' presence, Jesus' kingdom is what? If the old kingdom is, I can advance at your cost. Jesus comes in. He says, I will enable you to advance at my cost. It's completely reversed. I can help other people find satisfaction and fulfillment and security and safety and salvation and glory and power at my cost. This is why Jesus starts by reversing the curse. He, he, you know, you're sick, he heals you. You're blind, he helps you to see. He starts to reverse the curse in the world. What is he doing? He's saying, I've got a new kingdom and I'm bringing it in, I'm ushering it in and as it comes in like a wave, it's charging in. This is what it's doing. It's renewing everything that's broken. It's healing everything that's sick. It's reversing the curse of sin. And, and you know, he does this all the way to the cross. And if you think about it, what's he doing? What's this mean? This whole passage means that every step you take is a step either closer in one kingdom 
or in another. Every step you take is a step closer to one kingdom or to the other. Every step you take is a, closer, is a step closer to God or to Satan. Every step you take is one step closer to God's presence or one step closer to Satan's presence. And your sufferings and your anxieties and your nightmares, you know the things that keep you up at night? The nightmares, the things that if I just lose this, then my life is over, that's a nightmare. It reveals your heart's desire, the inner desire of your heart for the things that you want most, the things that are at the bottom of your desire. It's not necessarily money. It's what money gets you. Maybe it gets you approval. Maybe it gets you a relationship. Maybe it gets you power. Whatever it is, it's not just about power. It's what that power gets you. Maybe what you really want is influence. Or maybe in that power, you want, you want to just be able to exploit. And the reason why you want to exploit people is because you want that influence. You know? It's not just about glory. It's not just about security. You know? It's not just about uh, safety or about rescue. It's about what's at the bottom of that. What's at the heart of those things? Every step you take is one step closer to God's presence, which tells you it's your advancement at my cost, or it's a step towards the kingdom of the world that exists already. It's my advancement at your cost. So who's the enemy? If the enemy isn't God, then who's the enemy? And the Puritans, they knew this. They understood this. They wrote books about this. The enemy is inside of us. The enemy is us. The enemy's within. Satan's presence is acting on you. It's acting on your desires. The enemy is you. It's your desires. It's your inner struggles. It's your nightmares that are acting on you. So where's the power? How do you resist this incredible power that's inside that you feel like you need to feed and satiate all the time? How does Jesus respond? You're not going to like the answer. How does Jesus respond? Every single time he's tempted, what does he do? He responds with scripture. He just responds with scripture. He lives, he breathes scripture. You know, Job cries out, why me? That's what Job, Job says. All the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they're crying out, why me? Why me? You know, but, the, but if you think about it, the New Testament, the apostles, the disciples, you know, the prophets in the New Testament, they never cry out, why me? Not once do they ever complain or wallow in their misery or suffering. Why is that? There's only one prophet in the entire New Testament that ever cries out, why? And it's Jesus. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why me? Jesus resisted, resisted the temptation to indulge Jesus resisted the temptation to just bank on security now, the urgency of safety now. Jesus resisted the temptation for glory, for power now, the urgency and the desire to... He resisted that inner urge for that now. Those are all good things. Security, safety, power, glory, wealth. All those things are good. You know, fulfillment in life, these are all good things. We need these things in many ways, but he resisted the the urge to want to to just act on those things now. You know what Jesus' glory was? Before he was arrested, on the night he was arrested, he's with his disciples. And what does he say? In the book of John, he says, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified, for the Son of Man to be lifted up. You know what he meant by that? He was talking about the cross. He'd be hoisted up on a cross. That was his glory. He found glory in suffering. He found glory in weakness. He found glory in the ultimate suffering and the ultimate weakness in his death. And during the hour of his greatest pain on the cross, you know what he was doing? He was still quoting scripture. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he doing? That means that from the moment that he started his ministry to the pinnacle of his ministry on the cross, Jesus is quoting scripture. He's breathing scripture. He's, you know, he's in his, the pinnacle of his suffering. He's bleeding to death. He's suffocating to death. He's in utter pain, and God himself has abandoned him, and yet Jesus is worshiping. He's worshiping on the cross. That means that Jesus even processed hell, processed his pain, processed his suffering, processed his temptations through the Bible. And if Jesus processed these things through Scripture, then we can have the strength to process these things through Scripture by just looking at him as an example. As an example? By looking at him, is that all it is? Jesus prayed, so we got to pray. Jesus suffered, so we need to suffer. Jesus was tempted in all things, so we need to be tempted in all things. And Jesus endured, so we can endure. Is that the lesson here in this text? If you live like that, if you live like that, if you live thinking that following Jesus, you know, is the example. And if you end that, if I were to end that right now and say, you know what, let's pray and just go do it, you're, gonna, you're not going to last maybe 10 minutes before you're tempted by something, you're just going to give in to that. And you're going to grow bitter, and my words are going to become very uncredible to you, you know, and you're never going to come back. You know, and you're never going to come back. Some of you will never come back to the church because you think that that's what this lesson is. You never truly know Jesus. You're never truly going to know Jesus and love Jesus unless and until you see this, that Jesus did not come to be your example. Number one, if Jesus came to be your example, he was a failure because none of us have ever succeeded. We've never reached the highest light on our own. You know, we've never reached that. He would have been a failure of a teacher a failure of a leader, if that were the case. Jesus, you're never going to love Jesus and you're never going to know Jesus until and unless you see that Jesus did not come to be your teacher, did not come to, become a, to, to be a moral example, did not come to be a religious leader. He came to be your substitute. What's really going on here, think about what's going on here. Satan takes Jesus to this high place on a mountaintop. And um, he's not trying to get Jesus to stop being your example, you know. Otherwise, you know, to get him to do some petty thing that would, ah, you sinned. God, he's not credible anymore. And the human race is doomed. That's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to prevent Jesus from being your substitute, to prevent him from going to the cross. The things that he was offering Jesus, he was saying, you can have this, and you don't have to go to the cross to get it. He was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. He was trying to inflame Jesus' passion, his desire. Look at the world. I can give you all of this. All of this. Just don't go to the cross. Worship me instead. I'm going to give this to you now. This is what you need. This is what you want. Don't you want money? I can give it to the end. You won't be able to count the amount of money that I can give you. 
The kingdoms of the world, you will not be able to have enough hands to rule all of this. I can give it to you. He was inflaming his passion. He was inflaming his desire. He's saying, you can have this right now. Why suffer? Why go to the cross? Why didn't he do it? Ever wonder why he didn't do it? It's because that wasn't his passion. He gave all that up. He had all that and more, and he walked away from it. Jesus left heaven and condescended onto earth. Why? There was a greater wealth he was looking for. He was looking for security, but not for himself. He's saying, I'm going to give up my security. He was looking for safety. He was looking for rescue, but he was saying, but not for himself. He said, I'm going to give up safety. I'm going to give up salvation. I'm going to give up rescue. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying on the cross? I've forsaken, I've lost salvation. I've lost rescue. The one person who could rescue me, redeem me, save me, justify me has departed from me. Why do you think, what was so valuable that Jesus would be willing to do that? What was so valuable that he'd be willing to apply scripture through and through? You know, we can't do that. Jesus knows that we can't do that. We get taken up to a high place. We feel good about ourselves because we've earned it. And we're offered all these things. The desires will be too strong. The view will be too great. And Jesus knew that you can't pass those tests on your own. So he had to. He knew that. He knew he had to be perfect. Jesus, as an example, will kill you. But why did he come? It's because his wealth, the security that he was giving up was for you. His wealth was for you. His safety would become your safety. His salvation and his rescue would become your rescue and your salvation. Jesus, as an example, will kill you. But Jesus, as a substitute, will help you start to see the beginning of what it takes to resist suffering, to endure suffering and resist temptation. To, to pass the test. You know, on the cross, perfection was punished perfectly in our place. That's a tongue twister. Perfection was punished perfectly in our place as he promised. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm giving up satisfaction. I'm no longer, I, forget about fulfillment. I am now, I've lost everything that would ever fulfill me. I lost a father. I've lost my security. I've lost peace. I've lost power. I've lost glory. I've been disowned by the, by the father. To the highest form of disownment, I've, I've experienced that. The highest form of glory, I've given up. The highest form of security, I've given up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin. That's the transfer. To be sin for us. That's the transfer. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the transfer. You can attempt, you can try to obey because Jesus achieved. Because there's no penalty if you fail. Because you are melted into the love of God and the grace of God. You ever fall in love with somebody? That love is so overpowering that things you're willing to give up, things that you once liked for the things that that other person likes. 
You know, when you get married, you give up things. There's no doubt about it. Marriage is a wonderful thing. But the thing is, if you're like me, very, very individualistic, on the outside, it just looks like sacrifice. On the outside, once you plunge into it, you realize how amazing it is. And how, it just, it's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's not just the intimacy is good, but the satisfaction of being in, in a relationship with somebody who knows you utterly and you know, it's an amazing thing. But the thing is, on the outside, if you're a person like me, it just looks like you're just losing a lot of things. You're just giving up a lot of things, you know? Um, and uh, and <laughs> I just lost my place. I'm like, why did I bring that up? <laughs> I'm focusing on the things that we love. Why did, you know, why would you do that? You do that because you love someone so deeply, you're willing to give it up. I'll give you a very stupid example. I, I'm, a, I'm a Coke addict, not cocaine. I'm, I'm a Coke, the cola, Coca-Cola addict, okay? And I, you know, I love Coca-Cola, right? And, and the thing is, uh, I, I have to have it with every meal, and I realized at one point that when I don't have Coca-Cola, you know, I, my meal isn't satisfactory, no matter what I'm having, and it just feels bad, and, and I get irritable because of the caffeine and all that kind of stuff. And the thing is, you, you know, you drink it, and, you know, when I was single, any time I wanted, all the time I wanted, right? Every time I wanted it, now I'm married, and all of a sudden, all the Coke bottles are hidden. You know, and you're in shock. What do you mean? Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, this is, this is not the way my life was meant to be, you know? And, but the thing is, you do that. Why? Because somebody outside of you, who you love intimately, and, and, and is, is, is so present in your life, you know, that these things are petty. And you sacrifice so much more than that. And it's good. And it's good. No one ever, if you really love someone, if you're really overwhelmed by the love of somebody, none of the things you give up seem like work. That's why you have to recognize the embrace of the Father before you ever obey the Father. If you just obey the Father, you're just working. You're just working. And you never feel accepted. But if you trust and see the gospel, the length that Jesus was willing to go for you, you will fall in love again. It will be real. And it is real. Um, as I close, you know, there's a book, a uh, famous book, Charlotte Bronte, Jane Eyre. Um, phenomenal book. Without going into the whole story, she falls in love with a man. She's a very plain person. She's had a very, very troubled upbringing. But she falls in love with a decent man, a wonderful man. Um, this man, this older man named Rochester. Um, but there's a problem there. The problem is he's already married. He's married to a person who's sick, and she's, she's gone mad. She's insane. And so here's Rochester, an older man who's kind of wasting away his years because he's constantly tending to his you know, crazy wife, basically. And, and Jane Eyre is the governess in that household, and she's fallen in love with this man. And it's one of the greatest pieces of literature because it's the first piece of literature in history where you actually get to see real-time Jane Eyre's thoughts. You know, up until this point in every other literary genre, that was considered mundane and boring, you know. But here you get to see the intimate thoughts, what Jane Eyre is going through as she responds to things. So you don't just see the response, you see the, the thought process, the heart, the emotions, the struggles that are going on uh, as, as uh, she responds. And um, what's the struggle? She wants to be loved because she wasn't loved all her life. You know, and, and she loves this man. She loved this man. 
But what does she conclude? She must renounce love and idol. And she says, I will not be yours. That's what she says. You know, at one point, Rochester falls in love with her. Rochester wants her and says, you know, my wife's never going to know she's crazy. Let's just come together, you and I. You know, and he says, it would not be wicked to love me. It would not be wicked to love me. She responds, it would be wicked to obey you. But inside, you see the thoughts? Her heart, you know, her conscience is resisting. Her conscience, her heart wants this. It says to her, comply. Obey what he's saying to you. Rationalize, you know, what's going on here. Love him, love him, be loved by him. But she resolves. The law was created for such moments as this. The law exists for moments such as this. That's why she resolves. What does it mean? Our temptations speak to us. It's like a voice. You know, you know, you know don't, just, don't just feel angry. Act on it. Don't just feel sexy. Act on it. The voice says comply. Obey your appetite. Do it. Do it. Do it. But you say, I will be strong. I am resolved. Jane Eyre, you know, she's being told to appease society. Back then, women had very, very little rights, and you just kind of went with the flow. A rich, wealthy, handsome man of status is approaching you and says, sleep with me, you go and you do it. You know why? Because you don't have that. You don't have the status. You know, she's a very plain person. You know, this is an amazing book, not only because of the genre that it kind of ushered us into, but here's a woman in that era who's being told to give in to her passion, 